Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here with Alex Bick, who's an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Genetic Medicine at Vanderbilt. He has done a ton of amazing research in the past years, along with his collaborators and research group, focusing on a few different areas of genetics, but in particular around clonal hematopoiesis, which we're going to learn about today, um, and some of the interaction between somatic genetic variation, germline variation, how all of this relates at a very high level to the field of aging and many of the diseases that affect us as we age. So Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Patrick. I would love to just start at the start and hear a little bit about how you got into genetics research and in particular how you zoned in on this particular field that you're focused on today. So as an undergraduate, I was really excited to build organs and do tissue engineering and, you know, went to medical school and did an MD-PhD with the goal of, you know, curing organ transplantation. And then it was a couple of, you know, weeks into medical school, I realized that the organs were a whole lot more complicated than I had imagined as an undergraduate in bioengineering. And the other problem I had is I was trying to do research in medical school, but I kept having my cell cultures get contaminated. So I'd, you know, go away from lab for a few days to do studying, you know, for these med school tests. But around the same time, I had an you know, incredible lecture from uh, someone who became my PhD mentor, Cricket Seidman, about um, cardiovascular genetics. I said, wow, this is amazing stuff. And what's even better is that if I go away from my code for a couple of days, you know, the, the code doesn't get contaminated. So that's how I, my first foray into becoming a computational scientist. I, I had a similar experience where I, found, I, I was terrible in the lab. And the thing that I really liked about bioinformatics or computational biology is not only could you go away for a couple of days, but you could actually push the button for it to run and it would do work in the background. It felt like magic. Instead of having to come in on the weekends, you could run something on Friday and come back on Monday. And if as long as it didn't crash, it was, uh, it was done. Absolutely. And that's sort of how I, I ended up connected to this field of clonal hematopoiesis. So fast forward a few years later, I was one of the first students really working on exome sequencing and the Framingham Heart Study. And, you know, colleagues from down the hall had recently described clonal hematopoiesis, which is basically the age-related, you know, acquisition of precancerous mutations. So I like to think of it as just like before you get a colon cancer, you might have a colon polyp. And so we do colonoscopies to look for those polyps. You know, long before you would get blood cancer, we could find these mutations floating around in the blood. So in 2014, there were three research groups who all sort of independently described this. And one of the sort of surprising observations was that clonal hematopoiesis, which everyone thought would be linked to blood cancer, seemed to be linked to heart disease in sort of an intriguing way that no one could really understand. So in the heart disease field, whenever you want to prove something is true, everyone goes to the Framingham Heart Study. So uh, colleagues down the hall were asking, you know, who in your lab has access to these Framingham Heart Study exomes? I said, oh, it's that grad student over in the corner. You know, he's the one who actually has his hands on the data. And that's how I first got connected to clonal hematopoiesis. And a few years later, because I'm starting my postdoc, I joined, say, Catherine's group, who is a you know, pioneer in cardiovascular genetics and also one of the leaders in cardiovascular genetics that relates to clonal hematopoiesis. And Sig so said, Alex, you know, I think this clonal hematopoiesis thing is really interesting. You probably should work on that. I said, absolutely not. You know, this sort of an interesting sequencing artifact, but, you know, it's hard to imagine this is really going to go anywhere. And I said, well, just pick this up as your second project. And sure enough, as so often happens with research, you know, your mentor is right and you have no idea what you're talking about. So the project that I wanted to do went absolutely nowhere. And, uh, you know, this field of clinical hematopoiesis has absolutely blossomed. I would, uh, there's a couple threads that I want to pick up on. Framingham Heart Study, what was that? group like that you're working with? And maybe you can talk a little bit about, many people will be familiar with it. And we've had a couple past guests on the podcast, like Eric Topol, I think, who were highly involved. But it'd be great to hear a little bit about that study and the variety of things you learned about clonal hematopoiesis there. I suspect you uh, validated the finding. And um, it'd be great to hear a little bit about what that working on that team was actually like, because it is kind of a legendary, long-term community-based study that, uh, that has obviously yielded some incredible results. And in, in many ways, I think, laid the foundation for UK Biobank, Million Veterans, and other programs today that have taken it to orders of magnitude bigger and, and helped to fuel some of the other findings that I think we're going to talk about later. Uh, absolutely. So Framingham Heart Study was really this pioneering effort in the 1950s where 
researchers from Boston universities, you know, set up in Framingham, Massachusetts and said, what we should do is find, you know, 5,000 people and follow them over the next, you know, couple of years. Initially, it was sort of a modest scope. And then eventually it became over the course of their lifetime. And then that became then their children's lifetime and now their grandchildren's lifetimes. Now there's been about three generations of Framingham. And out of sort of the initial couple of years of Framingham, they identified the very first risk factors for heart disease, things like smoking, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And these are risk factors that, you know, you can have a really big effect. So you can find them in just a short period of time. And over time, they then added, you know, more and more different kinds of characterizations, coronary CT scans, for example, carotid ultrasounds, pretty much every kind of blood-based biomarker you could possibly imagine. And this data set around when I was in graduate school started to become more and more open to the, the research community. Uh, beforehand, you had to really be part of you know, the core Framingham team or collaborate closely with them to get access to it. But especially with the rise of genetics, there was this realization that Framingham with 5,000 people you know, wasn't enough to do everything on their own. Uh, and so they've started at that time you know, to start sharing genetic data to be part of, again, some of the the forerunners of our you know, large-scale genetic studies of today, you know, by finding the 5,000 people at Framingham and teaming up with 5,000 you know, patients in Jackson, Mississippi, the Jackson Heart Study, you know, 5,000 patients that were collected in you know, different parts of the UK. So in, in Framingham, what we were able to do was use really well-characterized clinical phenotypes. So uh, one thing that you know, often gets overlooked today is that, I mean, clinical studies in the past, three doctors would actually independently review every hospital record for every Framingham patient to decide, did they have a heart attack? Did they have heart failure? Did they have kidney disease? And so we're able to be really clear about what happened to each of these people. And so going back to clonal hematopoiesis, that's thread, what we found was people who had clonal hematopoiesis in the Framingham heart study were about twofold increased risk of, of getting coronary artery disease, you know, getting a heart attack, essentially. And, and that this risk was independent of all of the other sort of risk factors that made Framingham famous, cholesterol and blood pressure and smoking. And putting all of these things together, it, you know, it really elevated clonal hematopoiesis into the consciousness, if you will, of, of cardiovascular researchers. And I think also started opening uh, the eyes of the larger research community that Maybe clonal hematopoiesis was not just a precancerous mutation. It was really something that could create inflammation that has effects across the whole body. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear more about those two threads. What's the mechanism by which clonal hematopoiesis leads to cancer? And then is it a same or similar mechanism on the cardiovascular side or something different? So I think one of the things that we've really learned about clonal hematopoiesis recently is that clonal hematopoiesis happens because you have a blood stem cell acquires a mutation. That mutation gives that stem cell an advantage. And over you know, many years, that clone grows. And just like in, in human genetics, you know, not all genes do the same thing. Uh, the same thing happens in clonal hematopoiesis. There's a set of uh, driver genes that cause myeloid leukemias and other myeloid blood cancers. We found other mutations that cause you know, lymphoid blood cancers. We found other ones that cause, you know, that are related to loss of Y chromosome. That, you know, again, all of these different mutations give that stem cell an advantage. And so one of the things that we've been doing, you know, even in that early paper and to this day, is trying to be able to come up with this bigger taxonomy. And so across the board, most of these clonal mutations cause blood cancer as sort of being the first mutation. So if you think about you know, colon cancer, you know, first you have your first mutation, your second mutation, third mutation, fourth mutation. You can imagine the whole you know, vocal steam uh, diagram. And the same thing happens in, in blood cancer. So often you know, the first mutation will be a TEP2 or the MT3A mutation, and then get subsequent mutations. Different mutations basically cause different cellular phenotypes. So we find that particularly TEP2 as one of them causes a very pro-inflammatory phenotype where the you know, blood stem cell gets the tattoo mutation that it differentiates it to hyaluronic cells like monocytes and macrophages. And those monocytes and macrophages that are tattoo mutated 
act very differently, both in terms of secreting inflammatory factors and in responding to inflammation. And that's actually not entirely true of you know, other mutations. So for example, uh, JAK2, just another sort of well-known gene causes, you know, part of JAK-STAT signaling causes blood clotting. You know, it's linked to cardiovascular diseases, perhaps less through macrophages and inflammation and more from platelet activation and clotting. And then there's other genes, you know, such as, you know, loss of Y that probably has actually nothing to do with cardiovascular disease or, or has very little to do with it. So I think one of the things that's confusing for the field because it's so new is that people often call all of these things clonal hematopoiesis as just one thing. And really, they're actually probably you know, dozens of very different diseases. And how much do you or we as the field know about the process by which, you know, my my blood or your blood or anybody's moves down one or the other or some combination of these? When you look across a large population, do you see that everyone is a little bit of a mosaic or or is it path dependent on one of these events early on? And then you tend to have a particular, I don't even know if I'm using the right term, but family of you know, mosaics, and to what extent is the interplay between germline variants that we have driving those different lineages? I'm, I'm curious what the current frontier is in understanding how that process plays out over time. You know, we're all mosaic in the sense that if you take my blood or your blood and sequence it to, you know, 1 million X depth, you'll be able to say that out of the, you know, 100,000 blood stem cells that we have, you know, some number of them are mutated. I think one of the really interesting things is trying to understand how you get from, you know, these mutations that are happening all the time, including in cancer driver genes, to a clone that makes up, you know, two or three percent of your blood. So we've done studies, you know, across a number of different cohorts as well as colleagues around the world, where we've looked at you know multiple samples over a few different years. And the what's interesting is that we can find mutations if we sequence deeply enough. In almost everyone over the age of 30, let's say. But many of these clones are very small, and then they grow, and then they disappear. And so there's a lot of sort of clonal dynamics, clonal changes that are happening until the clone gets to be about 3 or 4% of the blood. And it seems like once a clone gets to be that big, it might shrink a little bit, but it won't go away. Um, and trying to understand sort of what are the pathways that determine you know, clonal growth and clonal dominance is of considerable interest. Interesting. What is it about that three or 4% tipping point you think that makes it a little bit of a point of no return? I think it's a great question. And I think we don't know. It could be that, you know, beneath a certain cell fraction, the immune system is sort of sweeping up these clones and um, taking care of them. It could be that the mutation is not actually that we're picking up with sequencing. It's not happening in the stem cell. It's happening in some downstream progenitor. And that downstream progenitor eventually sort of Peters out. But I think we have a lot, we have a lot to learn there in particular about, you know, that we probably can't get rid of clones in general. Like, you know, uh, sort of a t-shirt I remember seeing in grad school, our di- division of, at Harvard uh, Medical School was, you know, mutations happen. That was the tagline of the t-shirt. And, um, and that's certainly true. So, you know, we're never going to fix that process. But if we can start to understand what causes some of these clones to grow and others shrink, that might be a path towards a therapeutic. And so I guess one of the studies we published around this topic about, I don't know, maybe six months ago or so, was that we were looking at clonal expansion, clonal growth. And one big problem we have with measuring clonal expansion is that you need two time points. So you ideally have two blood samples 10 years apart to see how much the clone grows. Um, but there actually aren't very many of those collections in the world because most biobanks, UK Biobank, Million Veterans, some of the ones we'll talk about later, they just have one time point. They don't uh, say the genome doesn't change why we collect a second set of blood samples. And so working in close collaboration with uh, Sid Jayswell, who's at Stanford, we developed a tool called PACER to look at uh, clonal expansion rate. And we can actually estimate clonal expansion rate from a single whole genome sequence blood sample by looking at the passenger mutations. Mm-hmm. So just like mutations are accumulating with every cell division, some of them hit you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time, cause a clone. Others just happen. They don't do anything. We call them passenger mutations. 
And if you count the number of passenger mutations somebody has, you can identify how old the person was when that clone first arose. Sort of like you can count you know, rings on a tree to figure out how old the tree is. And so using this passenger mutation method, we could go from just actually measuring clonal expansion in a few hundred samples, which was sort of the world's published literature at the time, to estimating it in a few thousand samples. And when we did that, we found that there is a gene called TCL1A, which no one had ever linked to blood cancer or stem cell biology before, that seemed to, to modulate clonal growth. And then we did a number of experiments to try and figure out the, the mechanism of, of TCL1A. And what's, the way that it seems to work is that um, TET2 and several of the other um, chip mutations change your, um, you know, your epigenetic landscape, and they activate or they make the chromatin around TCL1A accessible, whereas TCL1A is normally only expressed during development. And this particular mutation prevented TET2 from opening up the chromatin around TCL1A. And so essentially, it was you know, preventing this gene that promotes clonal growth from being activated, which I think was you know, pretty exciting for us, because it's sort of the proof of concept that there are these pathways that exist. You know, that might even be able to be drugged someday yeah. that you can look right. at to, you know, to modulate clonal growth. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I guess the, from that, did you learn something about what the rate of clonal expansion says about cancer and or cardiovascular risk? Because I, on your website, you have a really helpful overview that over 10% of adults over 70 have, you know, have this phenomenon. And that group of people is at a tenfold increased risk of blood cancer twofold increase of risk of heart attack and 50% higher risk of death, I guess, of all causes. But I suppose that risk is probably modulated by how quickly earlier in life you're racing towards that expansion versus, you know, maybe stable. Is that right? Absolutely. And so, you know, clones that are bigger have worse risk than clones that are smaller. And so, uh, you know, we now know that even though 10% of adults over 70 have, you know, one of these clonal mutations, it's probably only a subset probably, you know, 1% of adults over 70 that have, you know, much of the risk of blood cancer, heart disease. And that risk is largely related to how big the clone is. And so people whose clones are growing faster basically are at, you know, more at risk. We showed that recently in a cohort in Australia called Spree, which is a, a randomized control trial of aspirin in, in elderly adults. It basically found that people who over, over three years, if their clone, you know, grew by more than 50%, those people were really the ones who were most at risk for cancer and heart disease, whereas everyone else whose clones were present but growing more slowly. Have you looked at how, uh, how this interplays with uh, some of the other potentially orthogonal risk calculators like polygenic risk scores? You, I think you mentioned you worked uh, in, say, Catherason's lab. There's been, there was some you know, great work uh, you know, a few years back about looking at orthogonal risk from polygenic risk scores from Sake and Amit Kara and a few others comparing to the Framingham risk scores. I'm wondering how these two fit together in the sense of does do the polygenic scores have any signal that tells you about risk of clonal hematopoiesis, or are they also potentially independent where you can start to think about stacking all these risk factors together in a useful way? Absolutely. You can definitely add all of these risk factors together in some sense. So you can take your, you know, chip risk, yes, no, you know, or maybe something more specific about what mutation, how big it is, plug it into a, you know, a risk equation alongside polygenic risk score to say, you know, how are they at high, you know, medium, low risk from a polygenic perspective, you know, alongside Mendelian mutations like FH. I think the thing that we're still trying to figure out and learn more about is sort of what period in life this makes the most sense to do. So, for example, if you're looking at people who are 90 years old, almost all of them have clonal hematopoiesis by the time you get to be you know, in the exceptionally elderly uh, population. And so perhaps you know, a risk score, all of these risk scores have periods that they're most useful. I think with polygenic risk scores, we find that they're most useful early in life because you don't have very much information related to the rest of the risk factors. And so trying to I think, put all of these different forms of risk together is you know, it's a really exciting area of human biology and clinical medicine. 
Yeah, I'm actually really interested to transition to how this fits into medical care, because I, my understanding is you also see patients in addition to your research work, right, as part of the Vanderbilt Genomics and Therapeutics Clinic. Uh, you also have, a, I think, a relatively unique amongst, you know, around the world, really, but in, in the U.S. in particular, there are more of these preventive and predictive genomics type of clinics popping up. We've interviewed Robert Green before, who runs, a, I think, similar kind of practice at Harvard MGH. I'm interested in how these come together and how you think about, you know, to the point you made earlier, there's a potential drug target in, in the one that you identified. But this kind of thing doesn't seem like as much of a slam dunk from a traditional therapeutics perspective. It's more about how do you risk stratify, intervene earlier. There are some great tools for managing heart, you know, heart disease risk, right, that we already have. And Maybe it's not a new therapeutic. In many cases, it's better ways of better identifying the at-risk people. So I'm interested in how you think about translating this into medical care and where the lowest hanging fruit are. Yeah, it's really a privilege to be able to see patients, you know, basically from a primary care setting in my genomics and therapeutics clinic. And essentially, we get patients from a few different streams. Some of them, an increasing number, have actually done direct consumer genetic testing. It did 23andMe, and 23andMe test results said you should talk to a doctor about it. And then they go to their primary care doctor to try and talk about it. And the primary care doctor says, you know, this is really not my area of training or expertise. I don't even know what you're talking about, but, you know, why don't you go see uh, Dr. Bick over in, in that clinic and he can chat with you. Uh, we see patients who, you know, very astute physicians, both in primary care and elsewhere, say, you know, you have you know, a rare kind of kidney disease. Maybe it's genetic. Why don't you go get tested? And we also get uh, referrals from patients, you know, themselves who are just, you know, want to be really proactive about their health and want their whole genome sequence. And again, we think of this in the same way as, you know, getting sort of an elective surgery. Uh, it may not be something that you need to have. It may or may not be something that insurance, you know, companies will cover. But certainly, it's every patient's right to be able to find out this information. And frankly, they're going to do it anyway. So they may as well do it in a setting that can actually help them in interpret some of the information coming out. And so we do see patients who are incidentally identified as having clonal hematopoiesis in that clinic as well. Often, these are patients who are getting sequencing done for breast cancer, let's say, and they're getting you know, tumor sequencing for breast cancer, and they get their blood sequenced as a reference. And then when they put the tumor normal sequencing together, they find you know, a mutation in the blood that's not in the tumor, and then they're, the doctor says, this must be clonal hematopoiesis, you should go see Alex. I think so much of what we do in terms of medical care in the U.S., probably around the world, is really driven by changing how we treat patients and sort of their, you know, what's the decision-making that you have. And so if you go back 10 years ago, you know, no one was doing genetic testing for lung cancer outside of you know, research settings and large academic centers. And then all of a sudden, we have EGFR inhibitors for lung cancer, and that became standard of care. So then all of a sudden, you needed to know what the EGFR you know, status was of your tumor in order to make you know, the, the right decision for your patients. We're seeing the same thing in, in human germline genetics. And I think we'll talk more about APOL1 in a few minutes as, as an example of this. But you know, with, for example, the availability of drugs for cardiac amyloid, all of a sudden, you know, genetic testing for cardiac amyloid seems a lot more reasonable to both patients and doctors and insurance companies, because if they have a cardiac amyloid mutation, then you're going to put them on a drug that's specifically approved for, you know, treating cardiac amyloid. And, you know, a blood test is a whole lot less invasive than doing a, a myocardial biopsy where you actually take a piece of the heart out, which is the, al you know, the alternative way that we diagnose cardiac amyloid. And so, it's sort of this interesting cycle where, you know, having a therapeutic helps actually drive demand for diagnostics, particularly genetic diagnostics, which, you know, people are often skeptical of because there's many ways that we can you know, risk stratify patients, you know, other than, than simply using genetics. Yeah, I had two episodes prior to this one. I spoke to Matt Nelson, who is um, at Deerfield now, but he's written a couple of now um, very famous papers about the use of genetics and drug discovery. And he made the point that he thinks for the next step change in genetics-based drug discovery, we need to be at the scale of hundreds of millions of people being tested. And really, the only way to do that is to get large-scale testing through the healthcare system. I think the big challenge it seems like to solve there is how 
do you get a test that's potentially useful across so many domains, but only at certain points in life or in certain circumstances paid for, especially in the US, um, but also in you know socialized healthcare systems like the UK, where I live, where the tests may not seem that expensive, but when you add on the interpretation, all the other things. And what I like about um, units like yours and the one that I mentioned with Robert Greene is you're sort of at the tip of the spear of how do you uh, understand what it might look like to have something like a whole genome that could cut across you know, lots of different parts of somebody's journey. And, and today there aren't that many, I think, clinics in the world that, that do it and figure out how you can route it, whether it's kidney disease or oncology or, or something else. I think you probably learned a lot about what it might look like to have a genomic medicine service, as we call it in the UK or something similar in the US. Are there any big learnings that you've taken from this or surprises from the kind of maybe demand that you've seen versus what you expected when you started out? So, you know, I've been at Vanderbilt about three years and, and for about 10 years before I got here, Vanderbilt's been really grappling with this in the field of pharmacogenetics, which, you know, I think was, was a really hot area about 15 years ago and then sort of has, has faded from some people's, you know, consciousness around what genetic medicine is. And what, you know, Vanderbilt said was that we need to identify the people who are going to be put on these medicines before the doctors want to put them on the medicines because it's going to be too late if the doctor says you need an antiplatelet agent for your heart attack. Well, yeah, let me wait a week to figure out which one. You know, we need one today. And so they called it the PREDICT program. And this was really a, a pioneering effort in my mind to say, let's think of all of the different points over the person's lifetime that you might need you know, a pharmacogenetic test. And let's just do all of them up front and put them in the medical record in a way that is you know, accessible and usable. And so sort of to this day, Vanderbilt, which has just a really amazing bioinformatics infrastructure, has been sort of building on that uh, precedent. And so, for example, we're trying to make it so that for germline genetic testing, if you have the test done and it comes back into the electronic health record, it doesn't come back as a PDF. It comes back actually as a you know, data, a structured you know, text in HL7 format, which is beyond my area of expertise, but in ways that can be computed on and that you can actually trigger you know, best practice alerts to clinicians when they're ordering the wrong test or they're about to order the wrong medicine. Say, you know, are you sure? Like, don't you know that the patient has you know, X mutation? And oh, if you're not sure what that means, click here and you, know, you can either get an e-consult, you can you know, connect with our providers virtually. Building those, that kind of infrastructure is not nearly as glamorous as doing you know, genetic discovery work, but is really sort of the hard in the trenches work that's going to take to make you know, genomics a routine part of clinical medicine. And I think you know, one of the things that we're trying to normalize at Vanderbilt and other sort of leading centers is that yeah, your genome is part of medicine, just like every other medical test. And you know, we recently had updated our consent state that you sign when you check into the clinic for every you know, clinic across Vanderbilt to say, genetics is part of the kinds of clinical care that you might get here. That it's no different than any, you know, than ordering a chest x-ray or getting a sputum sample for you know, your pneumonia. And that is a real culture shift. Yeah, I can imagine. And part of that culture shift, and maybe a good opportunity to shift into the APO1 discussion, are some of these very large-scale population genomics programs that are really sitting at that intersection between research and care and figuring out how to make the two work together. So you've, I think, done research with all of us, with Million Veterans Program, with UK Biobank. In particular, we were alluding to some recent work that uh, you were an integral part of, discovering a really interesting genetic modifier of in the gene APOL1, which is a gene that's involved in, uh, in a form of chronic kidney disease. I'll let you go into the details a little bit, but I'd also love to hear as you talk through the discovery a little bit about the different programs that you worked with to discover and validate it, because I think you worked with both Million Veterans and all of us. And so for people who aren't as familiar with those programs, I think it'd be interesting to talk about the scale that they're at and the way those programs work in the process. Absolutely. Uh, where to begin? So let's talk about April 1 first, and then we'll see where the discussion leads. Sable one is this absolutely remarkable genetic risk factor that is both, you know, really important in terms of the effect size and remarkably common. And so zooming out in, you know, 2008, when people were doing some of the first genome-wide association studies, 
there's this identification uh, of you know a really strong signal on chromosome say chromosome 22 I, I remember correctly and it was sort of confusing confusing because it was uh, you know sat on top of this gene called myh9 which no one's heard of because it was actually the wrong gene and so fast forward about two years later uh, martin pollock at the beth israel and uh, independent group uh, in israel at the same time basically found that there were two missense mutations in this gene apol one that caused that were responsible for this linkage disequilibrium peak causing kidney disease. And in particular, the reason why it was so common is that it conferred resistance to African sleeping sickness, to a parasite uh, called uh, trypanosome brucei. And just like you know, the sickle cell story that many people are probably familiar with, where if you have one sickle cell mutation, you're protected from, uh, from malaria. If you have two sickle cell mutations, you get sickle cell disease. Uh, APOL1 was the same way. If you had one of these uh, mutations in APOL1, then you were protected from trypanosome brucei. But if you had two copies of the mutation, if you were recessive, then you were at markedly increased risk of kidney disease. Markedly meaning like a hundredfold increased risk for particularly rare kinds of kidney disease called focal segmental glomerulus sclerosis or FSGS. Um, and so people we're quite interested in you know, trying to understand you know, what is APOL1, how does it work, and, and what you know, a number of groups had sort of converged on is that APOL1 um, is a lipid, apolipoprotein L1, that makes a hole, makes a pore in cell membranes of trypanosomes. It probably also makes a hole in the pores of kidney cells, uh, which is what causes its link to kidney disease. And so I guess this has been, again, just a really remarkable genetic mutation because it's found in about 13% of African-Americans in the U.S. have two copies. So it's, you know, it has a pretty enormous reach. And again, for people who have, you know, say HIV, that, you know, it's like a hundredfold increased risk of ending up on dialysis if you have one of these mutations. So I guess we're... States back to when I was a graduate student again, working in collaboration with Martin Pollock and his group. You know, there was this question of could we not every person who has APOL1 uh, two mutations gets kidney disease? In fact, many of them are fine for their entire life until something happens. And what that something is, again, there's many groups that are trying to figure out. So initially, we looked in the Jackson Heart Study, which is a similar to Framingham Heart Study, about five thousand people in Jackson, Mississippi, African Americans, and and really didn't find much. And the problem was we needed more people. So uh, Martin Pollack and uh, collaborators of his uh, in the lab had you know, done a series of experiments to say that you know, there's other mutations in APOL1 that in human embryonic kidney cells, which you know, hex cell lines, not exactly a real model for kidney disease, more of a model of just having a cell, you know, that there might be other mutations in APOL1 that might play a role. So since Million Veterans started, one of the goals was to have a really large, really diverse cohort that you could answer questions like this. And so let me give some background about um, Million Veterans, and then maybe we'll pick up on the thread of what the, the April 1 Great. story was. So in 2009, uh, Michael Gaziano, who's a uh, physician and a scientist at the Boston VA, you know, had heard from his friend Rory Collins that they were uh, building a a biobank in the UK called UK Biobank and said, you know, really what we need to be doing in the VA is doing the same thing and building out, you know, a, a really unique resource that will help our US veterans uh, benefit from this genomic medicine revolution that's happening. And the initial goal was discovery, but the ultimate goal was to be able to translate, you know, these genetic findings, you know, into direct patient care for the veterans. And so they started, they called it the Million Veteran Project. Why a million? I couldn't tell you. I uh, have number. to ask Mike sometime. But yeah, you know, it sounded good. And uh, yeah, people at the time, I remember as a grad student hearing about this project uh, at seminars in, in the genetics department, people said, that's ridiculous. That'll never happen. A million people, like, how could you possibly do that? And they said, you know, U.S. veterans are incredible people. They're incredibly generous in terms of, you know, they're highly participatory. 
And so, you know, if there's a way that this research project can benefit them directly or, or their fellow veterans, you know, that might be something they should be really excited about. The other thing that, you know, Mike knew from his years of doing, you know, large-scale epidemiology and clinical trials in the VA that probably many of the rest of us didn't is that the you know, U.S. Veterans Administration is in some ways not so different from you know, the way healthcare is organized in the U.K. So you know, the medical records all talk to each other. There's a you know, fairly centralized hierarchy of you know, building out these research programs, opening up clinical sites. And so you know, with, again, really significant vision and investment from the leadership of the VA, they took this on. They started setting up enrollment sites at you know, more than 100 clinics and veterans hospitals across the country. And fast forward, you know, I guess now what, 2023, so about you know, 10, 14 years later, they now have a million veterans enrolled in this program. DNA uh, blood gets collected. DNA gets sent to Austin for biobanking. There's a backup site somewhere in New Mexico, I want to say. And initially, the effort was to just try and start generating some genetic data similar to UK biobanks. So they leveraged a very similar array, this, this Axiom array from Mathematrics. A few years later, there was a short interlude where they tried to generate some exome data and then quickly sort of transitioned to try and generate whole genomes. And so, you know, today there's more than 600,000 um, veterans that have the app, um, data generated. It's probably been closer to eight or 900,000 by now, but you know, obviously this data needs to get QC'd and released. And there's a lot of batch effects when you start talking about data on the scale of arrays. And then they also generated uh, more than 100,000 whole genomes uh, about two or three years ago. This started. And the same idea, data's you know, been QC'd and processed and is now sort of starting to get to VA researchers. The data itself is, is accessible to any of you uh, researcher connected to the VA. And there are collaborative efforts to expand that. And I think there's you know, some exciting work that you'll hear about um, sometime in the next year where it'll you know, access uh, certainly to the results of MVP, if not to the underlying data, will start to become uh, a lot more broadly accessible. But um, what's amazing about the you know, U.S. veterans is that it's a very diverse group, you know, probably about 20% of the cohort or more is uh, African-American, for example. So it's certainly um, among the largest, if not um, the largest collection of genetics from individuals of African um, ancestry. It's linked to you know, very detailed longitudinal electronic health records. People often, once they're in the VA, are in the VA you know, electronic health record system for you know, decades. And again, the VA has built a very sophisticated system for pulling data together from all of these VA hospitals to a central repository. And so even as early as 2015, 2016, I remember going to, to various leaders in MVP saying, this APOL1 thing, you know, maybe we can actually answer the APOL1 question uh, in MVP. And it was around that time that I met Adriana Hung, who's a physician scientist here at Vanderbilt, you know, runs the dialysis unit at the Nashville VA, has been a, a leader of you know, the million veteran program kidney disease work. And Adriana is just a remarkable force in this space who, you know, fully grasps and, you know, understands the impact of APOL1 because she sees it in her patients. You know, many of her patients at the VA are African-American patients who have FSGS, have um, this rare form of kidney disease and end up on dialysis. And, you know, again, for many years, she's been deeply involved in efforts to profile APOL1. It wasn't until about, you know, I'd say two years ago that we finally actually had the sample size to do this search. That sort of this, you know, long song goal of the field in general and of mine in particular. And uh, initially we started by looking genome-wide. And what happens when you look genome-wide is just that even though you think having 100,000, 120,000 African-American veterans is really big, you know, only 10% of them, 13% of them have APOL1 high-risk mutations. So all of your sudden, your sample size goes from 100,000 to 10,000. Yeah. And then, you know, you want to start doing, you know, genetic discovery analysis at 10,000, you start to appreciate the point that Matt Nelson was making about, oh, really what we need is 10 million, 100 million people to do this. And so uh, what we did was we decided to sort of narrow our scope. Again, 
building on observations that several groups have made in vitro, as well as an interesting uh, study of a patient uh, from uh, somewhere in West Africa where they had come down with uh, African sleeping sickness in a place that was sort of not known to have African sleeping sickness. And they genotyped the APOL1. They said, well, they have the high-risk mutations. They shouldn't get African sleeping sickness. And they found that one of the mutations the person had was this APOL1 N264K mutation. So there were a few different sort of lines of evidence pointing us that this N264K uh, mutation in APOL1 might be protective. And so what we then did was look in the 120, 130,000 vets, focused really on the 14,000 that had these two high-risk mutations, and looked at whether any of them had N264K. And N264K is in the APOL1 gene and is not usually on the same haplotype as the APOL1 risk alleles. But we were lucky that there's a very uncommon crossover recombination event that did happen so that about 500 out of the 10,000 of them had high-risk mutations and one copy of N264K. And again, just to give you the scale, 500 out of 130,000 people are the people that you know, are of highest value to doing this kind of science. And it really shows why you need data at the scale of million veterans where all of us are using BioBank um, to do this kind of genetic analysis. I was going to ask about the significance. Maybe you could break down of it being on the same haplotype versus different haplotypes. How did that help you isolate the effect of the modifier compared to the risk variant? Yeah, so because APOL1 is a recessive condition, you need to have two copies of the risk variant. And so if N264K, which is normally on a different haplotype altogether, if you have one APOL1 and one N264K, you're not going to notice the difference because it's recessive. And so we really needed people who had you know, you know, N264K and the high-risk mutation on the same haplotype for at least one copy, and then the other copy usually was one copy of the risk allele. Right, so you can get that kind of allelic series of Two, two copies, one copy of the compound. I know I'm not quite using the terminology. It's not a compound head, but the compound uh, combination of the risk and Precisely. the protective. Interesting. Absolutely. And so what we found was, you know, again, me as a geneticist, you know, just truly astounding. So about 5% of people with high-risk mutations in million veterans are on dialysis. You know, wow. Dialysis is you know, worse than having stage four lung cancer, you know, in terms of life expectancy now. It's like the median expectancy is a few years once you're on dialysis. And so again, that's, you know, one in 20 of these 13% of African-Americans in the cohort. In among people who had, you know, two copies of the high-risk allele, you know, one copy of the M264K mutation, their risk of ending up on dialysis was half a percent. So it's tenfold, you know, less. And again, just the effect size there was shocking. So anytime you see something that's shocking, you know, you immediately assume that it's wrong. That's the way human geneticists are trained to think. It must be some kind of artifact. And so, you know, we wanted to replicate it. The challenge with replicating a discovery like this is just finding other cohorts that have enough African-Americans in them that have, you know, that you can find this rare haplotype that has in both mutations. And so you know, we often joke that we do genetic work in the biggest cohort in the world, and then we find something that we need an equally large cohort to you know, figure out whether it works. And it's very hard to find that. So fortunately for us, you know, the All of Us Research Program had, had just released their first set of genetic data. All of Us Research Program has a similar aspiration to million veterans to have a million or more you know, individuals from across the United States. They've done an incredible job being very intentional about recruiting very diverse individuals. And the way that they see diversity is not just in terms of genetic ancestry, but also in terms of people with disabilities, such as people you know, going to dialysis clinics, who you know, often are excluded from medical research because they can't make it to the research clinic appointment. Uh, it includes uh, you know, diversity defined many different ways. And so um, all of us had, again, about 20% of all of us, similar to 2 million veterans, were African-Americans. And, and so we put you know, this 100,000-person data set, of which you know, 10 or 11,000 probably had 
high-risk alleles of which, you know, probably a few dozen had the haplotype that we cared about in 264K. Alongside some data we had from Vanderbilt's biorepository BioView, which is also, again, a, a relatively diverse cohort in terms of having African-American uh, participation, and found you know, the exact identical risk ratios that, you know, that again, five to tenfold decreased risk of ending up in end-stage kidney disease. And essentially, if you look at people who have two risk alleles and 264K, they're no different than people who don't have any APOL1 risk alleles. So this was sort of when, you know, Mises' expertise, who were co-authors on the paper, and Herrick Green and his team really came to be extraordinarily valuable. Mays, uh, along with several other pharmaceutical companies, are really interested in APOL1 and thinking about, could we come up with a drug to treat that 12, 13% of African-Americans who have this you know, mutation? And they're particularly interested in, in understanding you know, how APOL1 is conferring disease mechanism of action and so forth. And so they had been um, developing assays in, in human podocytes which are you know, a very difficult cell type to culture, certainly well beyond my skills, you know, but are a whole lot more realistic than doing something in human embryonic uh, kidney cells, where they developed a system to very precisely express APOL1 um, and to express kidney disease, you know, risk mutations, in sort of a very controlled way so they could titrate how much was being expressed. And they were able to show that, in fact, the more APOL1 risk allele you express, you know, the more likely the podocytes are to die. But when they expressed either, the, either of the two risk alleles with N264K, there was no decrease in viability. So uh, you know, we thought that really this showed us we were on the right track. And, and the last piece of data, experimental data, that I think is really helpful in sort of um, solving this case of APOL1 uh, was the fact that, again, I mentioned APOL1 is a forms a pore in cell membranes. And they were able to show that, you know, through the pore, you could see calcium um, ions moving when you expressed it. Um, but when you had the N264K mutation, it, it blocked the pore. There was no conductance um, through the channel. And, you know, the small molecules that are being developed, including one that's in phase three trials at Vertex, the mechanism of action is thought to be that the small molecules block the pore. Yep. And so for us, this was really you know, one of those moments where you could say you know, this genetic discovery really validates the mechanism of action of this particular target and even of the kinds of molecules that are being you know, proposed to address the problem. Were you able to investigate, and maybe this actually answers the question, but I, I've heard a maybe related research, what is the word I'm looking for, wish list of identifying people who have loss of functions in APOL1, because what that might tell you is drugging this target likely to be safe. If there are people who have loss of functions and they're, they don't have major health issues, then you know, the logic follows that you might be able to inhibit the target and not have major health issues. Is this a proof of that? Or is it something different in that it's blocking the pore formation, I guess, but it's maybe not the same as a complete loss of the gene. But I'm not sure. I'm curious whether you all thought about that as a, another way to think yeah, about so, this. I mean, another thing that we you know, described in the paper is thinking about just more broadly, you know, do people who have two risk alleles and then 264K have you know, other health problems? Yes, so, that's right. You know, a common tool for that is, is you know, what's called CWAS, you know, wide association studies, where you just look to say, out of every other medical condition in the record, you know, do these people have more than expected? And you know, we were pleased to be able to report in this paper that that they didn't. That people who have you know this sort of genetic blockage of N264K, you know, did not appear to have other kinds of diseases. You know, in terms of the the question that you asked about complete loss of function mutations, there there have been a few cases reported in the literature of again, patients who have a, a complete loss of function, they tend to be at, at risk or susceptible to African sleeping sickness, and that's usually how they're identified. And, there's, and again, their kidney function is completely fine. So yeah, I think I'm personally pretty optimistic about April 1 as a trunk target, as are you know, at least one, if not more than yes. one, uh, industry. Maze, uh, Vertex, AstraZeneca, the list goes on. I think I, I am optimistic too. I think one of the 
it's a, it's another amazing proof of principle of genetic evidence for the target, but also for the safety profile of the target. And I, I'm optimistic that we'll see in the next couple of years some kind of happy resolution to this, you know, will be probably 20 year long chapter from discovery to uh, hopefully a, a treatment coming onto market. It's, uh, a, you know, it will be a, it will be a fun podcast to do in three or four years when one of these things gets approval. Absolutely. And I think beyond that, the approval of this agent will drive genetic testing for APOL1. Yes. Right now, you know, at our center and other centers, you know, their testing is done. It's more, you know, curiosity or to try and identify patients for trials. And we know that these patients should be particularly careful about monitoring their blood pressure, but also most patients should be particularly careful in monitoring their blood pressure. So, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a hard sell sometimes for insurance companies and you know, and others of why they should be specifically covering it. The other thing that really actually does transform in terms of medicine is kidney donation. So right now, often kidneys are, or kidney donors for African-American are tested for APOL1 before you know, their kidneys are considered you know, good candidates and also for the, the health of the donor. You know, if you have an N264K mutation, now you know, that, that's, again, a small percentage, but non-trivial percentage that probably are patients who, you know, would be perfectly safe to, you know, to be kidney donors. Yeah, that's a very good point. I've yeah. said on the podcast a couple times before, we have a rare kidney disease in my family. My dad's had a transplant, his brother has, and we, I'd like to get the author on a podcast soon, but recently the gene driving our family's rare kidney disease was discovered only a couple months ago. And we, my brother and I have gone through the very same thinking of until our gene is actually identified, we kind of don't know if we can donate to each other or other family members or so on. So mm-hmm. I, I feel that very viscerally in that, uh, you know, that question of like, hey, if you've got this that runs in your family, it's really helpful to know where you are on the risk spectrum because it informs your decision of whether you're looking for a kidney or whether you're donating a kidney uh, when you have that information. I know we're running out of time here. I just wanted to say thank you. This is an incredible interview. We covered a ton of ground from CHP, I'm just going to call it. I learned that acronym from you today from CHP through to APOL1 population genomics programs. Thank you. I, uh, I really appreciate it on behalf of the whole audience as well. I think this is going to be a, a favorite for a long time. Thanks for having me. Great. And as always, everyone, the thing that I would love for you to do if you love the episode is share it with a friend. That's the number one thing. And uh, if you have the time to leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it as well. Thanks again, as always, and we'll see you next time.